Tangible Hope Podcast, Episode 4. My name is Willie Elliott, and I am a professor at the University of Michigan, and my co-host is Melinda Lewis, a professor of practice at the University of Kansas. Maybe you did not know, but our Canadian neighbors have a successful national children's savings account program called Canada's Education Savings Plan. Today, we are fortunate enough to have as our guest, Christina Norris, Director General of Canada's Education Savings Program. She works in the Canadian government's learning branch, employment, and social development. If you find this episode informative and want to be sure others hear it, please hit the like button and subscribe. It only takes a second and helps others find this podcast. Also, you can find links to previous episodes and related materials in the description or show notes. Christina, maybe you can start us off by telling us a little bit about yourself and Canada's Education Savings Program. Super. Uh, thanks, Willie. Thanks so much for the invitation from you and Melinda to invite me uh, this morning to be on your show. As you mentioned, I'm a public service executive working in the space of Canada Education Savings Program. In terms of my personal history, I have worked uh, for the public service in a variety of roles over the past 25 years or so, and it's been uh, a lovely experience. In terms of our conversation this morning on education savings, I'd like to just start off by acknowledging that I'm joining you from where I work and I live in Ottawa, Ontario, Canada which sits on traditional and unceded territories of the Algonquin and Anishinaabe people. And in Canada, we are taking land acknowledgement as one of many important steps in our efforts um, on the path toward reconciliation with our Indigenous peoples. So I want to start there. In terms of the Canadian system, so many differences, some similarities to what's happening in the United States, but just as a quick memory jogger, you know, vast geography, small population, uh, population that's just hitting 40 million Canadians. Most of us live very close to uh, our American neighbors uh, along the border. Bilingual country, English and French, we're a country of immigrants. Half a million newcomers were welcomed um, into Canada last year. So a significant part of our population comes from um, immigrant sources. Education in Canada is uh, largely a provincial jurisdiction. So our 13 provincial and uh, territorial jurisdictions have the uh, important role to make education-related decisions. At the federal level, we also do quite a bit in this space and often in partnership with provinces. Uh, we do a fair bit of granting councils, research funding, significant transfers to provinces to support students, but we also do direct student support through a robust system of loans and grants and student financial assistance, and then pivoting to our topic today as well in education savings. Education savings, I think, are closely linked to your 529 uh, program in uh, the U.S. So education savings programs are largely delivered through a tax-free savings account called a registered education savings plans. These plans have been around in Canada since the 70s, working fairly well. What we noticed in government in the late 90s is that um, families who were using this tax-free savings account were higher income families and that the government decided they want to try and incent Canadians. The late 90s was a time of asset-based building um, in Canada, really leaning into that approach. And so the government developed a program where the federal government would deliver a benefit, a 20% additional grant on any dollar that families saved for their children's education. So a pretty generous grant. And there's a lifetime maximum of $7,200. So for every child, there could be a federal grant of $7,200 per child. 
what happened just uh, moving along the timeline a little bit is that in the early years of this program, it was a universal program. It was recognized that it continued to be the case that higher income families were taking advantage of this program and the government wanted to make the initiative more progressive. So to do that, the government did two things at the time. First, what we did is develop income tested grants so that children and families who had experienced low or modest income would receive an additional 20 or 10% on the savings they set aside for their children. So quite a generous top up based on income profile. Why 20 or 10%? Mm, just to make the incentive more generous for the most generous for low income people. So an extra 20% on the previous 20%. And then to recognize modest level income still needed a little bit of a step up. That's the 10% value. And in addition, recognition that those children who are experiencing low income may not have parents who can set aside any money at all for their children's education. And so at that time in 2004, uh, we created what's called the Canada Learning Bond. And that is up to a $2,000 grant that is deposited into an RESP of a child who's experienced low income without parents or grandparents having to save even a dollar. So that's an exciting program. That program now is reaching its 20th anniversary and the Canada Education Savings Programs, the larger grants are reaching our 25th anniversary. So this year, speaking with you, it's a, a lovely, we're celebrating a couple of birthdays uh, this year. Thank you so much for that context, Christina, and the way it helps people, I think, understand the way that nesting um, structures are helping families to approach education savings and how policy levers have been used to make an inherently relatively regressive structure a progressive one. So certainly a lot of lessons there for us to think about in Canada and also in the United States. When I was reading some of the materials that you shared and in preparation for our conversation, I was particularly struck that there's evidence that the CESP is not only helping um, students get to post-secondary education, but increasing completion. So I want you to talk a little bit about how you are thinking about the education savings policies as not just increasing access, but facilitating completion and what we know about why that matters and, and how you're trying to increase success on that front. And then if there's anything that struck you as particularly um, you know, important to focus on um, in celebrating these you know, birthdays and, and anniversaries, I'd love to hear what you know, leaps out at you. What are you looking at in terms of those indicators? Hey, Christina, my role yeah. in this is just to interrupt occasionally and, and make <laughs> comments. So, so I'm going to interrupt here and just simply put a little context to that for the kind of the U.S. audience. Uh, a lot of our programs, our children's savings account programs, which you oftentimes use the 529 system platforms, so similar to your program, are still relatively in its, their infancy. We started, you know, a lot later than you in this asset building endeavor. And so we're just getting to the point of having some kids in some of our, our earliest programs enter college age. And so uh, we don't actually have results yet on programs with kids in college. And so these, these findings are very exciting and important to us. And, and there are very few uh, uh, that exist uh, around the world. Italy has done some work, but, but there wasn't a national program and it wasn't a program that started early on started later so you so so you should be particularly excited about uh these findings in in you you're once again leading your neighbor uh in this effort so so we appreciate it 
right? That's why we want to know how do you do it? Um, because that is, you know, so much what we're hoping we will see in different asset building programs. And, and you're actually demonstrating that you're moving that most crucial needle. Mm, oh, one more thing. One yeah, more thing. <laughs> That's fun. And then we'll let you get to the important answer is I, I actually did some of the original work in the U.S. using um, secondary data. And so it was kids, it was around kids who designated savings for college. And we found some robust results with regard mm -hmm. to both college enrollment and college completion. And one more quickly, and understanding all of this for our audience is that these programs can start as early as birth or some in kindergarten. And so in the main goal was to increase college enrollment and college completion, which is so far off, right? In some ways, right? But yet so close. And the fact that like, you know, we had this early evidence around uh, the secondary data that was fairly robust. There's people right now in the US are butting their chops at finding out whether or not this actually plays out. So do tell. <laughs> Well, thank you for all of that context. Um, it is lovely to be in a, a state where we have program maturity of 25 years because we can start now thinking about the impact of um, education savings, not only on, as you mentioned, enrollment, but on completion. And we're just starting to look at early labor market outcomes as well. So it is an exciting Ooh. time to have this data set in Canada. I think some important context for the Canadian situation is that we are a country internationally that's recognized as having a high percentage of our population having a tertiary education uh, credential. So over 70%, I think we're at about 73% of our adult population has a college or university credential. So that's quite high in the international context. And in fact, some of that um, largely we think is driven to a very good and strong college level system. Um, I think in our university level system, we're, we don't have the same capacity as our American uh, neighbors, but a very strong college system and a country based on immigration where our human capital approach to immigration means that immigrants coming to Canada are already highly educated and um, value um, education as a pathway um, to success for their children. But we have some exciting data. Uh, we conducted a formal program evaluation last year that did show that we have 63% of 18 year olds who received education savings um, money were enrolled in post-secondary education by the time they were 26 that's compared to 33% of 18 year olds who did not receive that funding. So that's powerful on the enrollment side. Melinda, you were asking about uh, completion. Uh, of course, uh, enrollment matters, completion matters most um, in terms of labor market outcomes. But we do have also some exciting data showing that the probability of graduating from a post-secondary education institution was seven percentage points higher for individuals who had received education savings compared to those who hadn't. And the most exciting finding is all of this um, in our efforts to think about inclusion of those who experienced low income is that we found an important independent difference on education savings for low and modest income children. So that asset mattered more to them, even when controlling for other factors than it did uh, to middle and high, to higher income families. So those are some really exciting results. Let me say something on that note. That is something we have found consistently within our research, both in the secondary data analysis and in our primary analysis, not only with regard to college enrollment and college completion, but early education outcomes and expectations in these things have been stronger for the low income families. These programs benefit them more. 
in a, a social policy context where it's very hard to find programs that actually benefit low-income families. I mean, this is something really to be proud of and that is really important and, and why we are pushing so hard for these programs is not just because it's our research, but because it has the real potential helping low-income people. Uh, and we, so it is really exciting findings. Absolutely. I mean, one of the things then I think that we all you know agree is that because there is so much potential for these assets to be transformative, especially in the lives of those who have been disadvantaged, we got to find ways to connect folks to the um, asset building mechanisms. And so on this front, I noticed that, uh, you know, in the Ontario experiment um, and, you know, certainly thinking about the extent to which you can learn from what's happening in the provinces and, and partner that there's a federal and, you know, provincial um, partnership to some extent in these efforts, the, um, you know, effort in Ontario to tie RESP initiation to the newborn registration, the kind of birth uh, registration process. And that parallels, not to always think everything's got to parallel the United States. It matters what's happening in Canada for its own right, on its own right. But, you know, that um, you know, mirrors what we've seen in states like Rhode Island that tied um, starting a 529 to the, the birth certificate process and states um, that have try to simplify that process. So I'm, I'm interested in how you're looking at the federal level at those um, results in Ontario and, and just really what you're thinking about as ways to create systems that connect families to these accounts um, and to these asset building opportunities, precisely because you know what can happen for their students if they do. I'm going to test your memory, Christine. Mm, okay. Because <laughs> I'm going to I'm going to interject before you answer that question one more time to provide a little more context, and 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 so I think you know Michael Sheridan. He's kind of like the mm -hmm, godfather mm -hmm, of asset mm -hmm, building for mm -hmm. those those who don't know him. I was on an email exchange with him yesterday, and I was telling him that you were uh, coming to to speak on it, and and this is one of the primary questions of interest <laughs> to him. Uh, so your answer is is not only to our, our our audience, but also specifically to Michael. So, so no pressure. <laughs> okay, excellent. <laughs> so I'm happy to talk about the work that we're doing with Ontario. Uh, we we also um, deliver a, another provincial program that I, that I can speak a little bit about. What happened with uh, our colleagues in Ontario was really exciting. Our, our, our federal budget in 2017 made an announcement that we wanted to make registration for certain benefits uh, more accessible for parents in Ontario, so our, our largest province, who had newborns. And so uh, what we did is called the birth bundle initiative. So we have a five-in-one birth bundle initiatives in Ontario where parents can, through an Ontario uh, government website, uh, register their child's birth, request a birth certificate, apply for federal benefits. So the Canada Child Benefit is a really important um, anti-poverty measure in Canada, though it is also it also has a universal aspect. So all children are included. And those families can also request an education savings referral. And what that means is families who tick on that option in their five-in-one birth bundle will have a financial institution of their choice. We have a list of about a dozen who will make uh, a contact with them uh, within a two-week period of receiving that referral to start the process of opening an RESP. 
So we were really excited about that partnership. We'd love to, uh, to leverage that to do the same uh, process with other provinces. One of the things we find, if I were to be, uh, you know, as is my job, um, critical and aim to do better, is that it still is the case that parents who receive that referral need to undergo a number of steps to open a registered education savings plan. And so the impact on take up that we had hoped to see in Ontario hasn't quite materialized. I'm still proud of this work from a service delivery perspective. It makes good sense, but I think we need to do more to make the um, enrollment process in RESPs more automatic, easier. And this is where Willie has challenged and encouraged me on uh, many, many occasions. <laughs> yeah, and I want, to, I want to get into that a bit. Mm -hmm. So what we have found in, in the research here, and if Michael were here, he would, he would strongly uh, press this upon you, is that in the end, the amount of effort and time that it takes to try to enroll families, automatic enrollment is, is the only way to have full access. I mean, this is something that has that CSD Center for Social Development that Michael Sherrod runs. They have found just strong evidence that automatic enrollment is the way to do a kind of a national program that's going to be all inclusive. And so all we can do and hope that the people in your government will, will take time to watch this podcast and, and, and think about how they might actually get to automatic enrollment, particularly given the strong findings you're having with regard to its impact on low-income families, even if you only automatically enroll low-income families, it'd be a step forward that we would suggest all families. But so, so hopefully this will be something that you can leverage and use moving forward. And certainly, uh, I'm sure Michael would be glad to come talk to <laughs> to the people within the government, and I, I would also to, to the kind of benefits. Uh, of that. Not that we've accomplished that in the U.S. yet on a national <laughs> stage. Some of our states have done that, but um, and, and this does tie into a conversation we had that will come an episode prior to this uh, episode with uh, Ray Boschero from Senator Casey's office. He's a fellow there and he's introducing, uh, Senator Casey's introducing a uh, national legislation in the U.S. that very much mirrors, interestingly enough, kind of how you're, you've are putting more assets into the accounts for these kids, whether it's the 20% of the 2000 additional, all that different funding, right? And the initial $7,200 that you're, you're providing as a government to the kids is far more than what we have done in our state one programs. And, and this is kind of what uh, maybe Senator Casey's bill is trying to get towards is putting these much more robust amounts of money into the accounts. So once again, kudos to you at the same time, you need to look at that automatic enrollment to, to really make this, all that you want it to be. Totally fair. Thank you. Christina, the, in the management response, and, and that is among my favorite, um, like innovations and in, in how government works. I just thought like, here's, you know, here's research, here's evaluation that is conducted and we have to respond to those findings and those recommendations. So as a, as a, an instructor of policy and somebody who's you know cares about what policies say I just like that made my heart sing um one of the things that was um you know highlighted there was different outreach efforts because to Willie's point and I see you nodding your head so you know automatic enrollment gets folks in and and the closer you can get to that um then the more you don't 
put the burden of the initiation of those accounts on, on families and on kids. But that's not the only thing that matters. Um, there are also um, ways that you, know, you can um, encourage a, a savings orientation among those um, who are going to be influenced by some of the you know, behaviors and, and the um, experiences that they could catalyze for their kids. So I'm interested in what I didn't see in the you know, outline and particularly um, ways that you might use media, social media, you know, kind of grassroots efforts to create energy and, and momentum. Not that that substitutes for automatically or again, as close to automatically as possible, getting folks in the accounts, but just thinking about um, anything that you are changing or hoping to change um, or ways that you could leverage other um, efforts to to build an excitement in the culture of saving for tertiary education. Absolutely. So great question. Just Melinda, reflecting back on your feedback about our manager's response, I agree with you being in, in the public policy delivery world, the transparency about our management responses and our formal evaluation, both are which in the public domain. We were also subject to a formal Auditor General's report in Canada uh, about a year ago um, on a number of benefits and our effectiveness or not, um, including on the Canada Learning Bond. And we received important feedback from the Auditor General um, on that. And that report is also public and our response is public. And we have an obligation to go back um, to Parliament from time to time to uh, to report on our progress. So uh, I too uh, appreciate that as a, as a citizen and as a public policy deliverer of programs. For our communications, we do spend time, we have a pretty robust social media outwork. I'd say that one of the things that's a challenge um, in Canada, it may be true in the US, is uh, particularly for young people themselves and youth themselves, a sense of trust in government and interested in engaging with our government tools and resources. We're not always the best as uh, bureaucrats to, uh, to communicate with young people directly. We do have some partnerships that help us get at some of that information indirectly. Um, so we have spent over the past four years funding a range of community-based organizations from coast to coast to coast to do outreach and awareness taking um, on the Canada Learning Bond in particular education savings more broadly. We have particular uh, interest in particular subpopulations. We know that, for example, um, Indigenous children are less likely to be uh, enrolled in our program. So working really hard with Indigenous communities and Indigenous financial institutions, importantly, so Indigenous-led credit unions um, to help in certain First Nations um, go on reserve conduct enrollment events, uh, along with delivering other um, federal benefits. So we're working hard in that space. We also know that in Canada, we have a large percentage of children in care who are not receiving uh, education savings benefits. And being a child in care automatically provides youth eligibility to our program. And so that's some of the um, effort and outreach work we're doing with our community-based organizations. We bring that network together, those organizations we fund, plus others who are partners in the space for all of the good social policy outcome reasons that they might have and have a network of actually over 300 community-based partners that meet on about a quarterly basis. It used to be through teleconference. Now we can do uh, video-based uh, engagement sessions where organizations share best practices about what worked in their communities, whether it's newcomers, indigenous um, or other vulnerable populations. 
the issue of financial literacy is one that we are increasingly thinking about um, inside government and how to do a better job of translating what is a very complex ecosystem of financial supports for families um, and finding a way to um, ensure children and their parents are more aware of our programs. So progress made, but a lot more to be done. And that does, Willie, I think make me think some about what we heard from Ray about um, how um, in the United States, um, the proposal for that legislation would be a federal structure with an individual, or, excuse me, um, like states and communities being able to layer onto that. Um, so, you know, again, kind of this nesting. Willie, I'm, I'm interested in both of you talking a little bit about the outcomes in Canada's uh, evaluation about CESP reducing not only the likelihood of student debt, but the amount of student debt. Um, that being some, I was glad to see that in the evaluation because too often I think we look at student debt as a binary, like either you are having to borrow even though you built assets or you're not. Um, but this highlighted um, the reduction in the amount of student debt as an, as a something to be celebrated, which makes me think about also, Willie, your research and some of, you know, which I got to contribute to some um, of finding that people who don't have as much student debt um, when they finish college then are better positioned to do other asset building. So it just struck me as like a celebration that like, yes, it is a good thing if someone is still having, if they still have to borrow, but they are safe and they are having to borrow less, that's good for what their future prospects might be. Um, so I just would, would like to have some discussion about how we could think about the potential of asset building programs and policies in either country as reducing the amount of student borrowing and kind of what it would take for that to be an outcome that families could achieve through participating. Yeah, I'll, I guess I'll start it off. First, I'll, I'll, I'll direct this to the new report we at the, at the center have put out on the return on degree, which talks in some ways about about how to reduce debt and, and how CSAs can be a part of that. And, and I will say, uh, uh, Melinda, that I don't know if it's a celebration or we should just be playing out mad at uh, Christina because uh, every time, you know, we have these results, whether they are, you know, kids are more likely to go to college or graduate to college using secondary data, she goes and uses primary data and, and, and does it better. And now with regard to return on, I mean, with regard to reducing debt, which was a paper you and I wrote, uh, is is now she's trumping that again. So uh, we can either look at it that way. That's a, that's a cup half, half empty, I guess. Or we could look at it as a half full one and say she's validating our research findings from, from before, which is how I look at it, to be honest. It's, it's great to see that the things that we you know, hypothesized on and tested with secondary data and proxies are now showing out in the data. I think, you know, in, in, in the U.S. context, and I'm sure in Canada too, because I, I noticed that recently, Canada uh, adopted a program of zero interest on student loans. Which I think is something that the U.S. should go to because we find that uh, debt actually rises over time among college graduates rather than being reduced. And so, uh, it is really important, and that, that highlights both the importance of the findings is that kids who have less debt when they leave college are going to have better outcomes long term. And, and beyond just the finding that CSAs reduce debt the kids have, it also is important to understand that having debt 
reduces their labor market outcomes, reduces their return on degree in the long run, reduces the amount of wealth they can accumulate. That's why it's important that the debt is reduced is because of the negative outcomes that it produces on our kids' um, futures. Lastly, and I'll let you talk, is that this, when you brought up the fact that you'll be having these findings on labor market outcomes soon, that also uh, I think will be important and, and take the report we just put out to another stage and provide data around that, that that we don't clearly have as yet. Someone in a CSA program and how their labor market outcomes are better or worse, right, uh, will be substantial to substantiating some of the some of the hypotheses within that report. So we'll be anxiously looking forward to those those uh, outcomes and 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 hopefully we can do a blog or, or another podcast at some point or something to mm, to talk about. Absolutely. That. Um, uh, thank you for that, and thank you. And so, for the research listening, we are uh, uh, very lucky in Canada. I, I feel like I get to brag because I started my career at Statistics Canada, but we have a really um, respected, statist respected uh, statistical agency that does house for us an incredibly rich set of linked data. So we have um, uh, individual pathways, um, all kinds of socio-demographic characteristics through our uh, census data, linked with a wide range of administrative data. So for the researchers listening. We have education savings data, loan data, um, grant data, um, and then uh, labor market pathways. So a longitudinal administrative database housed very uh, carefully and closely, but linked longitudinal data. So it's really uh, an exciting uh, database that grows um, every year, and we're adding more data sets all the time. And you can link the kids in the program to that. And that's in the U.S. We might have the other data, but we don't have data that allows us to link our kids in statewide CSA programs, whatever else, to that data. So it is quite an advantage. Definitely. And because these programs are national, it uh, it's a little bit easier to do. In terms of the system, the sort of ecosystem of student financial assistance, it is true that, um, you know, whether there's debt matters and, and Melinda, to your point, how much debt matters a lot. There are some differences that we may have um, in, in general principles with student financial assistance. We do have quite a robust system of grants and loans, and certainly the government invested in the context of the pandemic in really important ways for students. I know that happened in the U.S. as well, and some of those measures have been reconfirmed in our uh, most recent budgets. Uh, having no interest on student loans is one of those measures. Um, we do a number of things like offering students the ability to take the grants and not the loans. We do have populations of students who are um, debt averse or who aren't comfortable engaging in interest-based programs. Um, so it's a pretty robust system. Um, in terms of funding for that system, 60% of those dollars for student financial assistance for loans and grants come from the federal government and 40% of the, those funds come from provincial government. So in some provinces, we have an integrated federal provincial system of delivery of student financial assistance. And we do also have a pretty generous repayment plan so that student borrowers who start to enter the labor market or have a hard time entering the labor market and are struggling in repayment, we offer them some assistance and relief, either pausing their payment. There are various measures that can be applied. So all of those things I do think help um, to make that integration, which is the objective of our education system into the labor market successful. I would press on you in, in this, not surprisingly, because you know, we wrote the report. So is 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 to 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 think about the report and just the negative effects even even some of the work that Melinda and I did very early on with regard to these what I call treating the symptom of debt and and while I think it's a, a large step to eliminate interest 
uh, and one that I think almost, I believe, and I don't really know that our president could do on his own, because uh, unfortunately we can't do anything as, as, a, as a Congress, and so it has to be done uh, through presidential authority. I think it's something he should look at. But my, my point here is to say that um, in the end, it just really is treating a symptom and, and that, that these students, even if they're allowed to pause, are going to suffer long-term outcomes from not being accumulated well from where they think they're at and all these other things. So, so the ultimate goal needs to be how do we make a more robust system that kind of gets us towards uh, not having debt at all when they leave college. But uh, these are great steps and, and do show the effectiveness of the program. Yeah, no, super exciting. So I think I only have probably one time for one more question and then we'll um, give you a chance, Christina, if there's anything that you want to add. But, you know, in addition to this robust data set that you have access to, this most recent evaluation um, included also qualitative conversations with um, families about their experiences and the way that um, participating in um, CESP, that receiving the um, Canada Learning Bond, contributed to an identity, a college-bound identity, and you know, really changed how they think. And that's the work that has um, you know, animated so much of um, Willie's scholarship and you know, attracted the attention of policymakers in multiple countries. So I just wanted you know, Willie, you to um, be able to chime in about what we know about how those identity facts and those expectations that um, parents talked about in this um, report in Canada, how those expectations um, catalyze outcomes um, for children. And then, you know, Christina, what made you focus on um, that aspect as a complement to this rigorous quantitative data? Uh, and are there other things that you are going to be looking for, especially among older students and, and graduates in terms of how participating in an RESP and, and CESP and um, the integrated system, how that's affecting how people think and feel about education? Christine, I'm going to let you go first, only because uh, I, I'm long-winded. So I want to make sure you get a chance to fully fully answer. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, Melinda, thank you for that comment. I think on, on this topic, this is where we're learning from you in the United States on the important impact of aspirations and that college-bound identity. So this is why we've reached out to you folks and to, to Willie so many times. One of my favorite personal narratives um, about the impact of education savings comes from uh, I don't know if she knows I talk about her as much as I do, but we have a, our first Indigenous president of a university in Canada is Dr. Deborah Saunier, who is the president of the University of Vancouver Island on our West Coast. Um, and she speaks about the Canada Learning Bond uh, wasn't in existence when her family uh, was thinking about her education, but she speaks about growing up in a fairly vulnerable childhood um, education, and yet her parents made a decision to set aside a small amount of money for education savings. And so she became a first-generation learner who not only completed a university um, undergraduate education, then went on to complete a PhD, and then became a president of a university. So she speaks about education savings as having had an agenda of hope, giving young people an agenda of hope. So that is a story we try and tell um, everywhere we can because it is so um, powerful. We were really pleased that we were able to reach out indirectly through partners and our community-based organizations to talk to families about their experience in engaging with the system. 
lots of pain points for families um, because our delivery mechanism is through financial institutions. It does happen that there are some biases and prejudice in those institutions in working with vulnerable populations and welcoming them into opening a tax-free savings account and making investment decisions. Um, so we are working hard on a better engagement with financial community. We are working at hearing how the um, names of our programs even are complex to understand for families, um, understanding the difference of the pathways to onboard and how those monies could be used. So lots of information for us on better outreach, uh, better information, simplifying our systems and processes and communication. All of those things matter a great deal. And as would be no surprise to you, um, the more vulnerable the population, the more we need to um, provide wraparound supports and services for those families. So that was just our assumptions were confirmed through that exchange. Just kind of piggybacking off of that, it, it is interesting that, um, uh, you know, using the term hope, and we have really started mm -hmm. transitioning towards talking about mm -hmm. tangible yes. hope as, as a way of kind of conceptualizing and thinking about this, because it, it just seems easier for people to understand, relate to, grasp. And, and, and what assets do, what we have seen in these programs do is, is kind of, and we're actually writing a paper now that uh, should be out in January around qualitative study in uh, St. Paul of, and, and it, it looks at how families think about assets and how they talk about assets as something for the future, where income is, is very present oriented. It's about consumption. It's about what can I do now? How can I make it through the day? When they start talking about assets, it's about how can my kids' futures be better? And I want to, you know, these kinds of things. And so, but a part, a part of what CSAs do, children's savings accounts, um, is they help make that future feel more tangible to the families. It's not just a wishful, hopeful kind of thing. It's, it's, we have grounds for believing that um, this can come, come to pass, that I'm not just aspirational about going to college. I actually have money being put aside by the government, by my family and by others that, that is preparing the stage for me to go, right? And I thought one thing, and this is just off, is on topic, off topic, that since I'm writing this paper, I was working on it today, some, I really started thinking about like, when you give kids an asset, you're giving them, it's not that you're giving them something physical in nature necessarily what you're giving them is is rights claims to the future that is backed by our legal system it's backed by our constitutions right and so that's that's one of the reasons why assets provide such a tangibleness and an ability to touch and experience the future because it's our faith in our institutions and if you read somebody like the soto's work uh, on capitalism and stuff. And he talks about how in some countries, unlike Canada or the US, uh, the property rights aren't as established. And so it's not just a matter of giving them assets, but it's also the fact that like, what gives it this tangibleness, what allows people to have so much faith in it is the fact that the strength of our institutions and that that claim is, is now out in the future. And, and if we understand assets in that abstract way, not as I own a physical thing, we can begin to understand and see how it lets us touch and experience and lay claim to a future for our kids and for ourselves. And so, um, I don't know, these are things we're, I'm, I'm, I'm exploring now and trying to put on paper more clearly, but um, I think you're seeing it on the ground and in, in the conversations of people within in your program. And we this is, this is consistent. Like of all the findings that CSAs have, they change the way people think about the future period. We can just stop right there with that.
<laughs> not literally stop the podcast, but 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 stop the. Well, no, I'm I'm. Thank you, Willie and, and Christine. I'm done asking questions. Although I'm sure I could ask you tons more. Um, but you know, I just want to give you a chance to say anything that you think um, listeners need to hear about what you're um, what you're doing and what questions you're asking in Canada as you continue to be, I think we consider a leader globally in um, using established systems um, to facilitate transformative asset experiences um, and to do so um, equitably um, and uh, informed by evidence. So anything else that we need to hear about the wisdom that you are accumulating there in our neighbor to the north? Thank you for that, Melinda. I think so. What I really appreciate about our various exchanges and dialogue is the ability to learn from each other. So I appreciate the kind words about our system in Canada. I agree. We have a, a sense of pride. Those of us who work in this space have an enormous pride um, in, in, in the work we do, uh, are, are deeply um, kind of values oriented toward um, supporting young people's pathways to education. And so that's uh, exciting and the recognition we have so much more to do. Our take-up problem is significant and serious and enshrined in legislation. Um, pushing through outreach uh, is wholly, uh, as you would say, insufficient. So this is where we look uh, to you uh, in, the, in our other neighbors. Um, and I think other things that have surfaced is what's, what's on my mind is our uh, need to do a better job at working with our important financial institution partners, some of whom go above and beyond to support um, some children in enrolling in the Canada Learning Bond. Others um, sometimes turn children away at the door of financial institutions. And so um, there is a lot of work to be done and a lot of work to be done in a context that recognizes the different um, needs of some of our underserved population, those who live um, in rural and remote areas in Canada, our Indigenous children um, and their families, um, and those who are experiencing the lowest of the low income. So sometimes that language is called hardest to reach. And so um, what we can do better in those spaces is what um, keeps us going toward uh, continuing to do better. Willie, is there anything that you would say in conclusion, other than thank you to Christina? Yeah, I think the program is going really well in Canada, and, I, and I'm excited about uh, the data that you produced and, and what's to come. Uh, and I just look forward to uh, developing our partnership more. Uh, I don't think we've done a good enough job of leveraging what each other is doing to, to boost each other's uh, opportunities. Um, and I will also say quickly is that there's a lot of international work going on with children's savings accounts. There will be several at least two more countries coming on board to countrywide or national type programs here at the beginning of the new year. And, and so this is something that certainly is growing internationally and, and something for all these programs to kind of look to Canada because look, they'll, they'll be starting from birth again, right? And so they won't have any of these outcomes for years and years. And so people mm -hmm. are gonna be looking to Canada for, for a, a good amount of time for kind of your experiences and your learning. So we really appreciate all that you're doing. And in, in our ability to, in just being a good people. Thank you so much. Before we end, I got to say, please subscribe, please link, you know, hit like, I guess. And, and so we can help other people get this podcast and, and look forward to episodes coming up with uh, New York City and their community-based uh, scholarships. And I think that's one aspect that Canada could build on is 
multiple streams of assets flowing into the accounts. And so I had a question about that, Willie, but I didn't get to it um, in yes. the 45 minutes. So, and to be, you know, to be fair, um, Canada is starting with a more um, robust and closer to sufficient, uh, you know, infusion of assets built into their policy. But there are always other streams of assets that could be leveraged to oh, support yes. Canada, Canada, Canada. <laughs> the, the most powerful part of CSAs is the ability for multiple streams. And, and in the US is just beginning to take to look at that and think about that. But I'm telling you, the government investment you already have, uh, the multiple streams piece could take you to free college. Understand that, right? It could take you to the ability to get to free college and even assets beyond a four year degree. And so uh, looking forward to that conversation. And then, then uh, Michael Sheradden will be on in episode six uh, since we mentioned them earlier. So uh, thank you, everybody, and uh, really appreciate you. We're, we're going to end it here, and, and hopefully you'll come back and listen to more. Thanks so much. Thank you, Christina.